What's the biggest party you have ever had on your property? 50 people? 100 people? Some of us have had pretty big parties on our properties before. I know Sarah and I had over 100 people on my grandparents' property for our wedding reception. A big tent was set up, tables and chairs set out, and dance floor laid down. Food was catered and Portageons were rented. It took a lot of planning, as any of you who have put on a big party well know. Just a year before that, this was going back close to 10 years now, a year before our wedding, roughly, there was a girl in the Netherlands who created a Facebook event for her 16th birthday party. She invited her family and friends. Only trouble was that she forgot to make the event private. Friends invited friends. And so 3,000 people showed up for her birthday party. Riots broke out, and the police had to break things up. It was certainly more than she had originally planned for. Most of us wouldn't be prepared to host 3,000 people for a party. For starters, we wouldn't have the money to pull it off. We wouldn't have the resources to make it a success. People wouldn't get a slice of cake, and a riot would probably break out. For all our talents and abilities, there's nothing like a crowd to remind us of just how small we are. Our powers melt away before an ocean of people. Jesus is familiar with crowds. Ironically, crowds gather around him because of his capacity for crowds. People would surround him with needs for healing, and he would deliver. It wasn't too much for him. In Matthew chapter 14, we find Jesus surrounded by thousands of people. But on this occasion, an unprecedented situation develops. So I'm going to invite you to turn with there, there with me this morning to Matthew 14. We'll be starting in verse 13. Matthew 14, verse 13. Starting in verse 13. Matthew records, When Jesus heard what had happened, he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. Hearing of this, the crowds followed him on foot from the towns. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them and healed their sick. Now we're going to take a little pause here to just kind of recall kind of our context. Jesus is leaving and going because of the thing which he had just heard that had happened, which was the death of John the Baptist, which we covered in the first uh, 12 verses of this chapter. And I had commented at kind of the end of that chapter how 
it seemed as though maybe Christ was leaving, trying to find some solitude because of the sorrow that um, he was feeling for the death of John the Baptist. Maybe some of the, his own fears that he was working out, just trying to take some time. I think, I think that's possible. I, there's also um, other concerns that Jesus had as well, though. In Mark chapter 6, chapter six verse 31 says, then because so many people were coming and going that they did not even have a chance to eat, he said to them, his disciples, come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. So in seeking a little bit of a break from the crowds, it wasn't just for Jesus' sake. It's for the sake of his disciples and them getting some rest and probably also taking some time to be able to uh, teach them and instruct them kind of one-on-one without having the crowds looming around them. And so they get in a boat and start traveling across the Sea of Galilee. Only trouble is, is that people see him and they, they figure out the direction that he's heading. Um, again, if we go to Mark chapter 6, we see in verse 33, it says, but many who saw them leaving recognized them and ran on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. It's kind of a funny scene you can imagine developing. There. Oh, there's Jesus, and they're running. It's like, you see that boat out there? That's, that's Jesus and his disciples. You, you know, Rick, he's got that broken leg. We're going to go take him across the lake, and we're going to meet Jesus when he gets to the other side so he can get healed. That's kind of what's going, going on here. You have people from all these different towns from across Galilee swarming to where Jesus is going to eventually land. And so Jesus is approaching the shore in this boat, and you can see the crowds. And you can imagine, you know, if we're Jesus and we're trying to get some alone time, we'd be like, really? <laughs> like, I was trying to get away from you all. And you just keep following me. That's how we would feel. And you could almost imagine Jesus kind of initially maybe feeling like, I was really looking forward to this solitude, getting some quiet time with the disciples, and yet his heart breaks for the people. His heart is moved with compassion when he sees them. In Mark 6.34, it says that he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And you'll recall we've talked about this earlier in Matthew when this phrase was introduced because it has prophetic significance of how the rulers and leaders of the people in the Old Testament weren't really leading and guiding and caring for the people. And so they were like a sheep without a shepherd. And so it was with the people of Jesus' own day where the Pharisees were just burdening them. They weren't ministering to them. And so Jesus' heart just breaks for them. He has the heart of a shepherd. And so he welcomes them and he begins healing their sick. Now, nothing would be exceptional about this occurrence if not for what happens next. We've already heard before about Jesus' compassion, about his healing, but on this occasion, something different develops. Something so memorable that is recorded in all of the Gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Continuing in verse 15, Matthew writes, As evening approached, the disciples came to him and said, This is a remote place, and it's already getting late. 
Send the crowds away so they can go to the villages and buy themselves some food. Jesus replied, they, don't need, they do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. We have here only five loaves of bread and two fish, they answered. Bring them here to me, he said. And he directed the people to sit down on the grass. Taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the people. They all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up twelve basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. The number of those who ate was about 5,000 men, besides women and children. So Jesus is with the crowds, and he's healing, and the other gospel accounts indicate that he wasn't just healing, he was also teaching them, which is probably part of the reason why he was why they were there so long. And uh, the disciples are noticing how late it's getting. You can kind of imagine if they had watches, kind of looking at their, looking at their watches, um, and then recalling that this was supposed to be a trip where they were going to get away from the crowds. And so maybe they had genuine concern for the people and their needs for being fed and all this, and uh, and so they said, figured, let's send them away so they can eat. But you can also imagine maybe it was kind of like, yeah, um, we really need to send them away. They need to be getting, get their food. And so they come to Jesus and kind of almost with a tone, like the responsible, caring thing to do here, Jesus, would to, to send the people away now <laughs> at this point. I think, you've, I think you've done enough. But Jesus turns the table on them. Basically, he says, wow, you think the people should eat? That's a great idea. They do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. Now, we cut some additional details uh, in the other gospel accounts about this kind of interaction between Jesus and his disciples. In John 6, 5, starting in verse 5 of John 6, it says, When Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming toward him, he said to Philip, Where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? He asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. And Philip answered him, It would take more than a half a year's wages to buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. Now, in that telling that John offers us in his account, we might wonder, why does Jesus ask Philip? Um, and just kind of as an aside here, the reason why there's different details across these Gospels is that there's different authors, and so it's like different eyewitness accounts. And so they have all these different details of what has happened. And so just because one Gospel doesn't mention one detail doesn't mean that it didn't happen. It's just that author decided not to record those details. So we can, we can trust that this interaction happened between Jesus and Philip, and we ask why? Why does he ask Philip? Well, if we pull the thread of that question, we unravel something that has been called undesigned coincidences, which is the idea of details across the books of the gospel matching up in really astounding ways without the human authors coming together and kind of collaborating and designing those matches. As though, you know, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John said, okay, I'm going to mention this de detail, but not this de detail, but you will mention those details, and we kind of work it all, all out. Um, 
And what it does is it kind of gives credit to the truthfulness of their testimony. Um, the fact that it wasn't designed, it's just all their details happen to match up. Now, um, if we go to Luke 9, it's interesting because Luke mentions that the place in which Jesus and his disciples landed was a place called Bethsaida. And um, John doesn't mention this in his account, his account, but he does mention something five chapters earlier that brings all the pieces together. In John chapter 1, verses 43 through 44, or just verse 44 rather, it says, he writes, Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida. Now, there's some spelling differences here between Luke's account and John, because uh, in Luke, he says Beth Bethesda. I might have said that wrong earlier. He says Bethesda. But in John, he says Bethsaida. And these are just different, um, different versions of the same, same place. It's the same area. So the reason why Jesus asked Philip about where they can buy bread and food for the people is because he's from the area. And so we see the details from John's account and Luke's account coming together and complementing each other. Now, Philip says that it's impossible to buy enough food for the people because it's going to take a half a year's wages. And some, some of the different versions of the Bible just gives you the actual number um, of, the, of, the, of the money, 200 denarii, which is meaningless to us. But if you trans transfer the currency into our own dollars, it would be about $8,700. That's a, that's a big sum of money, especially when you consider they probably didn't have a whole lot of money um, as just fishermen who were also away from their boats and all of that. And he says, you know, if they spent even this sum of money, it would only be enough where everyone would just get a little bit. Just a little bit of food, not even enough to meet their hunger. Now, Matthew doesn't even bother um, with all these considerations and these details. He just jumps to the point where the disciples consider what they have, and it's not much. In verse 17, the disciples say, We have here only five loaves of bread and two fish. In John's Gospel, it's interesting because it says, he says that it wasn't even the disciples' own fish and bread, but instead they got it from a boy in the crowd. So they're like, okay, Jesus wants us to feed the people. Like, don't have enough money. We don't even have the food with us. Oh, that boy. He's, hey, kid, can we borrow your, your loaves and your bread? Um, and you kind of got to wonder, you know, obviously they're looking at this and they're like, this isn't going to be enough. And it's almost more just a prop to demonstrate, Jesus, see, look, this is all that we have. And it's clearly not enough. So you're just going to have to send the people away. They're just happy on their capacities. They have nothing to give. But then Jesus says this. He says, bring them here to me. You've got to imagine the disciples are wondering, okay, what is he going to do now? <laughs> he says, bring them here to me. He has them sit down, the people, in an organized fashion. So it's like he's preparing the people to eat. Because in those days when they ate, 
supper and when they ate their dinners, they didn't sit in chairs. They didn't have chairs. They just sat on the floor. They sat on the floor. And so he's basically putting them into a position to have a meal. But rather than just moving to, to having the disciples just doling out fish and bread, we see that Jesus first gives thanks. He prayed before they ate. Now this is typical of Jewish custom at this time. The head of the household would offer a prayer of thanksgiving before the meal. I think it's also instructive for us today to stop and give thanks before our meals. Um, now, we might imagine the disciples thinking, give thanks for what? You know, you've only got these five loaves and two fish. And I think sometimes, like them, we can be tempted to grumble rather than to give thanks for what we have. We so easily take things for granted. But Jesus doesn't. If Jesus, the Son of God, doesn't take these things for granted... If he gave thanks, then so should we. Even for small and seemingly mundane things, we take for granted. Jesus gives thanks to the Father. He breaks the bread, divides the fish, and gives it to the disciples. And the disciples give it to the people. And a ripple of astonishment, we can imagine, breaks out among the crowds as um, you would imagine, these are small pieces that they would receive. And yet, the people have more than enough for them to eat. It's the complete opposite of what we imagine, everyone just getting a little, little piece. In verse 20, it says, They all ate and were satisfied. In Mark's account, he says, they all ate and were satisfied. In Luke's account, it says, they all ate and were satisfied. In John's account, it says, they distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. This was a feast. You could have as much as you want. And as the people are munching on their bread and fish, we can imagine that the words of Scripture were racing through their heads. First, they probably thought about their ancestors, the Hebrew people as they were being led out of Egypt and they were in the desert, and they needed bread. And God sent them bread from heaven. In Exodus 16, verses 15 through 16, it says, When the Israel saw it, this bread from heaven, they said to each other, What is it? Which, in the Hebrew language, is manna, which is why it gets called manna. For they did not know what it was. Moses said to them, It is the bread the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Everyone is to gather as much as they need. Take an omer for each person you have in your tent. So just as in the Old Testament, in the case of Moses and the people of Israel, they were given all they, they needed. So here Jesus is giving the people all that they need. Maybe their minds went to words of the prophets. Maybe words of the prophet Joel, when he says in Joel 2, verses 26 through 27, You will have plenty to eat until you are full, and you will praise the name of the Lord your God who has worked wonders for you. Never again will my people be shamed. Then you will know that I am in Israel, that I am the Lord your God, 
and that there is no other. Never again will my people be shamed. Most definitely, we can imagine that they thought of the account that is given in 2 Kings 4, verses 42 through 44. Here we have a story from the prophet Elisha. Starting in verse 42, it says, A man came from Baal Shalisha, bringing the man of God 20 loaves of barley bread baked from the first ripe grain, along with some heads of new grain. Give it to the people to eat, Elisha said. How can I set this before a hundred men? His servant asked. But Elisha answered, Give it to the people to eat. For this is what the Lord says, They will eat and have some left over. Then he set it before them, and they ate and had some left over according to the word of the Lord. Now catch this. Like Elisha, when Jesus distributed this bread and fish to the people, they had leftovers. They had so much leftovers that it says in verse 20, the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. And this was after feeding not 100, just 100 men, in the case of Elisha, but after feeding 5,000 men, plus women and children. So we're probably talking about something like 7,000 to 10,000 people. Now, Matthew doesn't uh, tell us the reaction of the people to this miracle, but John does in his gospel. In chapter 6, verse 14, it says, After the people saw the signs Jesus performed, they began to say, Surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. That's the impression that we're supposed to have when we hear this account. That Jesus is yet again showing us who he is. He is the Messiah, the promised one to come. And throughout this gospel, he's showing this again and again and again. And I think this is what Jesus was primarily aiming at showing the people and, in fact, showing us today through this miracle. He was trying to show us his identity. And this is what we've been dealing with. You know, Herod was asking, Who, you know, who's this Jesus? I think he's John the Baptist. This miracle is kind of indicating probably a little more than John the Baptist. But I think there are some other things that we can learn as disciples from Jesus from the example that we have here. Notice Jesus' compassion for the crowds. If we are Jesus' disciples, we need to share in his compassion for people. Solitude is good. Jesus sought it out for both himself and his disciples. But he also didn't let his plans, his preferences, get in the way of caring for people. We need to follow his example. But we can only show this kind of compassion. We can only care about other people if we are drawing from the right resource. When Jesus told the disciples they should feed the people, they basically freaked out. They didn't have the food or money to do it. But what they did have, those five loaves and two fish, they gave to Jesus. Jesus looks to the Father and then gives the bread and fish back to the disciples 
to give to the people. I think this can be an example for us. We have nothing to give out of ourselves. If you embrace the community of the church and try to serve and love others out of your own energy and personality, you're going to find yourself getting burnt out very, very quickly. That's what happens when we depend on our own resources. Rather than just giving the little that we have to Jesus and trusting what we have, which isn't much, to him and saying, God, I know that I'm not enough. I can see how (laughs) there's probably a point here where I might tap out and there are times when we do need to take a break. At the same time, Father, I know that in every moment, whether I'm full of vigor and energy or if I'm feeling tired, I can only do this through Christ. When we get burnt out, it's because we depend on our own resources rather than just giving it to Jesus. Our ability to serve others comes from him rather from not from ourselves. And sometimes I think we can demonstrate that trust in Christ, that we are giving it over to Christ and not trusting in ourselves, even by pulling back. So sometimes it means pressing into service and trusting in Christ, that he's going to work through the little that we have to offer. But other times it means stepping back. Because if we're all over the place and saying, I'm going to try to meet every need, then even in that instance, you're not trusting in Jesus, but in yourself and in your own powers. And that's something that I have to personally remind myself as a pastor, that there's so much to be done. And I can't do it all. And the same is true for you. You can see needs in the church, and you can say, you, you might feel an urge, like, I want to meet that need, and that need, this one. You can't do it all. This is the work of Christ through his body. But do this. Do offer the little that you have. And he will work through that. Offer it faithfully to him. He gives us our salvation, and he also gives us our daily strength. And it's from his hand that we distribute this grace to others. Jesus is still asking us to do impossible things today. He wants us to bring the gospel to every people group across the face of the earth. He wants us to make disciples, to somehow compete with the massive entertainment industry, the political rage cycle, jobs and sports, for the time and attention and devotion of our brothers and sisters and neighbors. In the face of it all, we feel small. And we are small. But Jesus doesn't give us license to send the crowds away because of our weakness. To leave them to just figure this out on their own. No. He calls us to give ourselves to him so that he can do something with us. And he will do something with us. God is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think or imagine. From him comes the power that works within us to make disciples, 
and do all that he has called us to do. Let us pray. Father, you are the one from whom all blessings flow. You are the one who takes what little we have and multiplies it and makes it more than enough. We see this through Jesus Christ, your Son. We see it in the miracle that He performs here in feeding the masses. And Father, we recognize that if this church is to be anything, it cannot be on the basis of our own power. It can't just be because, just because we're a group of people congregated together and with all our skills, trying to bind it together to add up to something, Father, because it will never be enough. But Father, we are more than just a group of people. We are the body of Christ. We are members of your Son. And so, Father, we pray that you would help us to trust in Christ rather than in our own sufficiency. Not just for our salvation, Father, but for the work that you have set before us. That we would trust that even with the little that we have to offer, Father, that you can do something with it because it's your power, not ours. And that, Father, when we can see that on our own we can't go far enough, we can trust that Christ is enough as he works through his body, meeting the needs through all the members, Father. We just pray that you would help us to trust in him and in his work rather than ourselves. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. The Lord bless you and keep you as you go. Hey there, Pastor Tom here. I hope you enjoyed this sermon I offer to Rockland Community Church. Rockland Community Church is located at 212 Rockland Road in North Citruit, Rhode Island, just around the bend from Citruit Public High School. We invite you to join us in person or virtually this Sunday as we continue our series through the Gospel of Matthew. It's our joy to welcome you into our community.